Here we go. Unstoppable force is our current teaching series. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's us. He's working in us and through us. And so what we're learning here as we work our way through 1 Timothy is how we can become everything that Christ died to make us. And so 1 Timothy is about how we should behave as the church, what the church should look like, what a healthy church looks like. And uh, we're going to talk about this morning, love like family. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll cover that whole chapter here this morning. need to say, I need to apologize here that uh, I... Um, my voice and my energy, uh, this, this message deserves much more than the passion that I can give it this weekend. I've been out for the count for the last seven days with that crazy cold, and uh, it, is, it was really bad. And my wife said, if you didn't have so much sin in your life, <laughs> if you had more faith, that is so mean of her. You're supposed to help me. She sounds like Job's miserable comforters. And, uh, and, and she, you know what? She doesn't know anything about suffering. I mean, she only had three children, gave birth to three children. That's not suffering. Anybody can do that. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm treading on thin ice there, aren't I? <laughs> no, she knows a lot about suffering. She didn't actually say that. She said something worse, <laughs> but uh, she didn't actually say anything. She's very encouraging, but I had her actually read the verses last night in the booth, and I asked her if she would do it for the two services this morning, and she said no. <laughs> and I said, if you love me, and she said, good luck, buddy. So she's actually busy in the coffee bar this morning, but she, she read the verses, and so I've got someone else to read the verses. Pastor Phil is back there in the booth to read the verses, and he did a great job the first service. He's not as pretty as my wife, but he did a good job. And so what we're going to do a little bit different this morning, instead of reading the, the, the text completely through, we'll make a point, and then we'll read the text. So keep your Bibles open. We'll work through that. You have your sermon notes out. Look at this intro. This is from Francis Chan, a quote from him from his book, Letters to the Church. We live in a time when people go to a building on Sunday mornings, attend an hour-long service, and call themselves members of the church. But have you ever read the New Testament? Do you find anyone who, quote, went to church? The fact that we have reduced the sacred mystery of church to a one-hour service we attend is staggering. Something that God has designed to function as a family has been reduced to an optional weekly meeting. And let me, let me continue on here in his book, and he says this, try to imagine Paul and Peter in the Bible speaking like we do today. Hey, Peter, where do you go to church now? I go to the river. They have great music, and I love the kids' program. Cool. Can I check out your church next Sunday? I'm not getting much out of mine. Totally. I'm not going to be there next Sunday because little Matthew has soccer. But how about the week after? Sounds good. Hey, do they have a singles group? 
He continues on and says, it's comical to think of Paul and Peter speaking like this, yet that's a normal conversation among Christians today. Why? There are so many things wrong with the above conversation, I don't even know where to start. So here's what we're gonna cover here this morning in our text, chapter five talks about how we should love like a family. That's the foundation of the rest of the chapter. That's the big idea. And then after that, we'll talk about care for those who have no family, and then care for your leaders. That's where we're headed with our study here this morning. But first, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? I'd like to pray Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. If we're gonna love like family, we've gotta be saturated with our Father's love, and that's what this verse talks about, So, or these verses talk about. Let's pray. So Father God, we are delighted to be here today. We pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you would strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with, with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of your love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said... Amen. Take a look at your sermon notes. Here's your first fill in the blank. Love like family. Love like family. And that's established for us here in verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. So you can see that in those first two verses. He's just telling us, he's showing us we are to love like family, relate to each other like family. Uh, and there's some nuances to that as you read through that, some really uh, more detail. But let me, let me continue on and kind of explain what this is. Uh, I have an older sister and a younger sister. I was born in a family of three. I was right in the middle. And uh, we fought with each other like most siblings, but not as much as we fought for each other. And this is what I, I found, you know, as we were growing up. The more we grew up, the more we matured, the less we fought with each other, the more we fought for each other. And I think a healthy family does that over time. If they're really maturing, if they're really growing, a church family, we fight less with each other, we fight more for each other. And um, my older sister, Vicki, um, Vicki and I rode the New River bus from Hades. Um, I was trying to be nice there, but I guess Hades kind of softens it a little bit. But um, she was a junior at Moon Valley, and I was a freshman at, uh, at Apollo. My parents moved out into this area over here at 35th Avenue and Union Hills when I was in the fifth grade. And there were the, only, the closest high school at that time it was back in 68, 69, and so I've kind of pretty much grew up in this area. And so the closest high school was Moon Valley. They were in double sessions. And so we would catch this bus from New River 
and they would pick us up over here at Western Meadows and would take us to, to Moon Valley. And then I'd get on another bus that would take me to Apollo. I graduated from Apollo. She, she graduated from Moon Valley. And then my little sister, Aloha, ended up graduating from Greenway. She started at Thunderbird and then finished up at Greenway. Actually, was in double session at Moon Valley, went to Thunderbird, and then finished up at Greenway. I don't know why I told you all that, but there it is, okay? But... <laughs> But the fact is, is that uh, it was interesting because we would get on this bus uh, from, from New River, and uh, my sister was a, a cheerleader, pom-pom girl from, from Moon Valley, and I was at, as a freshman, I was five foot and weighed 98 pounds, and uh, I, I got bullied a bit uh, being small in stature as a freshman. So I know bullying, but we both got bullied on that bus. And so what would happen on that bus ride is as they would come into Western Meadows and pick us up, all the kids from, from um, New River would, would take over the back half of the bus, so each one of them would have a seat all by themselves with their feet straddled out across the across that, and all the kids in my area would cram in the front seats. They were packed out with three and four in a seat, plus standing in the aisles. Les was the bus driver. I remember him, and the bus was out of control. He could not bring that bus under control whatsoever. They would cuss him out and threaten him. He'd go back there and try to get in their face, but it wouldn't do any good. They would smoke pot in the back of the bus. They would intimidate, threaten, and bully the kids on that bus. But you need to know, even though my, my uh, sister was a junior, pom-pom girl from Moon Valley, she had a punch like Mike Tyson. <laughs> she was tough. I mean, she, she took after my dad. My dad could knock someone into next week. And she was just like him. And so she wasn't going to have it that her and I would be bullied by anybody. I'm her little baby brother. And so we would let everybody pile on the bus. And then she would walk me back to the back end of the bus and she'd say, hey, uh, Ray, where do you want to sit? I'll sit right here. Okay, would you please move your feet? If they didn't move, her, move their feet, she would move their feet for them. She'd basically almost flip them out of the seat. And they would cuss her, say, okay, Ray, you sit right here. And then she'd walk back a little bit further and then find a seat for herself. And they would try to intimidate her and try to bully her. I think one time I remember this, that they started cussing her like they were going to come after her. And she says, is that all, the, all you got? Come on, I'll take you. And I'm like, ay, ay, ay. You know, I can't do anything here. I'm, I'm wimpy here. And it was, just, it was just really crazy. But she wasn't going to put up with it. She looked after her little brother. And she had my back. And she fought for me. And that's what families do. That's what this family does. That as you mature and grow up, you fight less with each other and more for each other. And that's really what he's saying here, these first two verses. And um, in fact, I think it's really what he's saying here is kind of a summary of what, he's, what Jesus told us in, in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Listen to these verses, and I'm going to ask you two questions based on these verses. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's kind of telling us this is the kind of relationship. We, we are to love like family. 
as he's saying here, and Jesus is emphasizing this. So here's a question for you to talk over with the people sitting next to you, just real quick. You should know this. How will people know that we are his disciples? Real quick, ask the person next to you, see if they know the answer. Okay, that's the fill in the blank on your notes there. So how will people know that we are his disciples if you have love for one another? Church growth experts have come up with countless strategies to reach unchurched people when God says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's another question, discuss it with the persons uh, sitting around you. How are you to love each other? So we are to love each other. That's how the world will know that we are his disciples. But how are we to love each other? What is that, what is that coming from? Real quick, discuss it. It's, it's in, that ver- in those verses, if you, if you remember what those verses said. So it's your next fill in the blank. So how are we to love each other just as Christ loved us? That's it. Just as Christ loved us. We have experienced the greatest love in the universe. You and I, we have experienced the greatest love in the universe. The creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth allowed himself to be tortured and killed for us and then And then he tells us to love one another in the same way. That's amazing. That's overwhelming. If that profound love is in us and flowing out of us, that's enough to shock the world. There is no reason for a group of people supposedly filled with the Spirit of God, able to hear the voice of God, lavished with the love of God, that they would need gimmicks to reach unchurched people. But that's what the American church culture has fallen prey to. Gimmicks to try to attract people, to get people in their church. I could list a number of those gimmicks that I've seen in in churches. There's no, no need for that. Now, there's a couple reasons, two barriers to this kind of love. It's the next uh, two fill in the blanks. This is what keeps us from that. Anonymity, two barriers to this kind of love. Anonymity and individuality. This is, this is very prevalent, prominent in American culture these days. Anonymity, I don't want anyone to know my problems. Individuality, I can deal with my problems on my own. That mindset is extremely unhealthy. Extremely unhealthy. And um, the first one is motivated by fear, anonymity. I don't want anyone to know my problems. The second one is motivated by pride individuality, I can deal with my problems on my own. Both are rooted in shame. So the foundation of both of these, fear and pride, they're kind of a cover-up, they're fig leaves that we try to wear. 
but it's because of shame in us and it's evidence that we don't understand the grace of God because the grace of God tells us that the only eyes in the universe that matter knows you to the bottom, to the core of your being. The creator knows every detail about you and yet he loves you to the skies. No one loves you more than him. And so that eliminates the shame that frees you from shame and motivates you to want to get close to others. So, so here's my question. As you're growing in your relationship with God, you should be growing in your capacity to love God and love others. You should be getting closer to others. Not this anonymity or individuality That's totally contrary to Christianity. You don't understand God's grace and you still have shame in your life. So my question is, are you becoming a more loving person? I just want you to think about that just for a minute. If I were to come to those that are closest to you, Would they tell me that you, yeah. I mean, if you were to talk to my wife, that would be the one to talk to, my wife, my kids, those that are closest to me, staff members. Are you a more loving person? What would they say? Would they say that about me? I hope they would. I hope through the years that I am indeed becoming more loving. Are you becoming more loving? Think of those people that are closest to you. What would they say? See, it's inconsistent that if you tell me that you're walking in vital union and communion with Christ for you not to grow in your capacity to love God and love others. There's something wrong with that. So, so how would I know whether or not I'm actually growing in love, growing in this capacity to love? Well, we'll think about, is there kind of a punch list in the Bible somewhere? Yeah, it's all over the Bible, but there's one in particular. It's called the love chapter. Anybody know where the love chapter is? Where's the love chapter? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and in verses four through eight, it says this. Now just, to, just kind of measure yourself against this list. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-centered. Not easily angered keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So how do you measure up? Not so good? You need some work? Yeah, I do. I kind of blew it after the first one. Love is patient. Boom. (laughs) I'm out. Gee, I need help. I mean, that's... So here's how you grow in your love. You're not going to grow in love by trying harder, by leaving the service saying, I'm going to be a more loving person. If it kills me, it's going to kill you. I mean, that's just all, all there is to it. Here's how you become a more loving person. Your love for God and others will grow out of an experience of his love for you. 1 John 4.19, we love him because what? 
He first loved us. He first loved us. He first loved us. Preemptive love. He came after us. You're sitting here because he's coming after you. He loves you. It's not enough to know that God loves you. You must regularly experience his love in your heart. It can't just be a concept. It's gotta be a reality. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you were overwhelmed by the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, his love for you. You knew, you knew he loves you. You had that experience on your heart. And it created this love that began to overflow your life that you were actually able to love people that otherwise in the past you knew there's no way I can love them. Even your enemies, you had a love in your heart for your enemies because that's what his love will do for you. That's what his love will do to you. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So, so how, do we, how do we make it not just a concept but a reality in our heart? John 15, five says, I am, Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So if we abide in him, what does that mean to abide? To, to live, to dwell, to make our home in him, vital union and communion with God. And, and he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jude 21 says, keep yourself in the love of God. So we could say, make your home in Christ's love, reflecting on it, saturated in it, standing in awe of it, and your life will overflow with love for God and others. You must regularly turn aside from busyness and amusements and distractions and just savor and bask in his love. I go to bed at night just reflecting on his love, memorizing. In fact, I've, I've memorized that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through eight, and I go to bed reciting that. And the only way you're gonna be able to have that in your life, you must first see God loving you like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through eight. That's first of all him coming to you. That's how he relates to us. And then that fills my heart so then I can be that kind of loving person that would reflect 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through eight. You must regularly turn aside from busyness, amusements, and distractions. Put your phone down. Get away from the TV, turn the radio off, whatever, and begin to just reflect on his love. I'll take verses and meditate on them throughout the day. And, and, and by the end of the day, as I've reflected on those verses and thought about those verses, oh my goodness, they begin to take hold of my heart. They become more real to me than anything. And I begin to experience his love deep in my heart. And, and, and I know that because I, I, it's how I respond to the circumstances and the people and the things of my life. I respond totally different because I know his love. I'm experiencing his love. No pleasure, no pleasure on earth compares to knowing and experiencing God's boundless and irresistible love through Christ that overcomes sin and suffering. Let me say that again because some of you actually don't believe that. No pleasure on earth. Think of the best pleasure you've ever had on earth. It doesn't come close to, to the pleasure of knowing and experiencing God's boundless and irresistible love through Christ. And that love can overcome sin and suffering no matter what you're going through. No one will love you like he does. No one. 
No one will love you like he does. Why would you ever look for a substitute? But we tend to do that. Our hearts very quickly wander off. No one will love you like him. Okay, love like family. Here's the next one, number two on your notes. Care for those who have no family. Psalm 27:10. David says, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And uh, some commentators, I was looking at that, and some commentators would say, well, David never really had his family desert him or abandon him. In, in, the, in the ultimate sense, they did because they died, and they left him there. But one commentator put it this way, it is more likely that his father and mother would leave him an unimaginable idea than that God would desert him. That's the point that he's making. And I know that there are many here at Desert Breeze that have experienced that uh, having a family abandon them or forsake them either through neglect or abuse or abandonment. And, and that can create a lifetime of baggage that is really hard to unpack. But what David is saying here in Psalm 27:10, but if God takes you in and you are part of a healthy, biblically functioning church family, you can experience healing and wholeness. I'll never forget the story. Her name was Rose. She was nothing like a rose. I don't mean that in a mean way, but she really wasn't. In her appearance, in her disposition, she was a very sad, insecure, depressed gal who was in her 30s, and we later found out that she was in a verbally abusive marriage relationship. Her clothes were, were very sloppy, unkept. She had oily, stringy hair, long hair that fell down into her face. And uh, she was at our small group. And I was leading the small group. I would lead in worship, and then we would lead in a Bible study. And she came into our small group, and she sat there. She wouldn't give anybody eye contact for, for many, many weeks, probably a month or so. But what I saw happen to this gal, as, and it was really an unbelievably safe environment for her, that through the safety of the people that were there, as we just let her be who she was, over time, she started giving us eye contact. And over time, she actually started washing her hair, and, and she actually started changing her clothes, and her disposition in her dress began to transform before our eyes as we loved on her and accepted her and poured into her and accepted her right where she was and just began to minister to her. It was absolutely amazing. It took about six months to a year as this began to transpire. It took some time. But it was safe for her to be there and just be who she was as she struggled with life. And the people in that small group just poured into her. It was absolutely amazing. And in fact, it was, it was so, so amazing that her husband was so shocked by her transformation that he started coming to church and then later got saved, came to faith in Christ through her transformation. And that's what, and she, she had no family. She had a husband that was abusive. And I'm sure that he probably didn't like us helping her with her boundaries during that time either. But we began to teach her some really healthy boundaries. And she really didn't have a family except for us. And we were her family for her and, and, and fought for her in that. And it was transforming for her. 
And and that's what it means, care for those who have no family. Let me give you the next thing on your notes. And so the the writer here, Paul, as he's writing to young Timothy, he basically in verse three says, honor destitute widows through support. You can be a destitute widow either by death or by divorce or by, uh, you're in an abusive environment even. And so verse three, he talks about that. Honor widows who are truly widows. Notice what he says there. Honor widows who are truly widows, truly widows. And so he's gonna give us the criteria here. He's gonna give us really the uh, qualifications for what he's saying. But uh, notice on this small print on your notes, throughout the Old and New Testament, God shows special care for widows, for orphans, through his people, Israel, Exodus 22, 22, Isaiah 1, 16 through 17, through his son, Mark 12, 38 through 40, Luke 7, 11 through 17, and now through his church, James 1, 27, that's through us. So, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, that there are some, really some significant differences between widows in the first century Ephesus and the 21st century America. Would you agree with that, major differences? In fact, we are, we are uh, for the most part, living in an affluent culture where many people have disability and life insurance, 401Ks, nursing homes, and assisted living centers. And so here's the point that I'm making. The needs are a little less financial and more spiritual and relational in our day and time. And really what he's saying here is that widows represent anyone who is destitute, marginalized, an outcast, or an underdog. That's, that's what he's really getting at here in the bigger picture. This was their greatest need. That's why he's addressing it. He's talking about anyone that would fit into that category, destitute, marginalized, outcast, underdog. And let me just say this about Desert Reeves. You guys do a phenomenal job in that area through our small groups, through our benevolence fund, food bank, back-to-school supplies, Thanksgiving dinners, Christmas gifts, missions and outreach that Pastor Darren gave us the update uh, just a few weeks ago. And so you guys do a great job with this, but there are some qualifications here, and you need to know that. He gives qualifications. So you don't give out money indiscriminately. We don't just help indiscriminately. Here's the qualifications. They must be without relatives, verse four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, why, why would he say that? Because our first line of defense and support should come from what? Our family. Should come from our family. So when someone comes in here with a need, this is the first question we ask. Do you have family? Who's your family? Oh, and if you don't have family, do you, are you part of a small group? Who's your small group? They're, they're gonna be your family. They're gonna support you. They're gonna be there for you. Those are kind of that criteria that we work through as we try to support people and help people through that, and that's what he's saying here. The next one, next qualification, is they must be dependent upon God and devoted to prayer. Verses five through eight. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach, 
But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a pretty stern statement there at the end. Did you notice that? But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So first line of defense is your family. And um, by the way, that doesn't mean that you, you help out uh, your, you, don't ha- you just don't help your family out indiscriminately. It actually says in Titus, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so it gives other criteria there. So if you've got somebody that's just lazy, doesn't want to get a job, just wants to sleep around for whatever reason, it doesn't, it's not saying, oh, you need to bail them out or you need to help them. That's actually enabling them. So you need to know the difference between actually helping people or enabling them. And so, like I said, you don't give out money indiscriminately. You really want to help that person as a whole person in every way. It's much more difficult than just passing out money to somebody out on the corner. Sometimes that eases our conscience. We think, oh, I did my part. No, actually you didn't, okay? You might be enabling. And you just need to be aware of that. And those people need to be put into the system here. There's there's great organizations. Sometimes those people get kicked out because they don't want to do anything. All they want to do is panhandle. And they don't want help. And they might not need to hit rock bottom. But if we keep bailing people out all the time, that's not helping them actually in the long run. We're trying to help them. That's part of it. I know it's, it's tough love. It's part of what we have to do. This is why the Bible actually gives this criteria here. Now, here's the next one. Older widows should serve and younger, younger widows marry. So you got verses 9 through 16. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Really good insight here. So it's laying out qualifications. That's why we study the Bible the way we do. God is giving us insight into how to take care of people in his family. Love like family. Care for those who have no family. Here's the third thought. Care for your leaders. Care for your leaders. So we've taught this. You guys know this. A healthy church is to be led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. CEO-run churches are unhealthy churches because there's no real healthy accountability. And so Desert Breeze is led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons as established in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We follow what the scripture actually teaches in that. 
And it's really important to do that. Now, this is what it tells us about the leaders in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. It gives us the fivefold ministry, and it says, basically, leaders are to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So my job is to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Who are the saints? Anybody that's a saint here, raise your hand. If you're a Christian, you should raise your hand because you're a saint based on what the Bible teaches. So everybody that is a Christian and you're part of this church, you're a saint. So my job and the jobs of our leaders is to equip you for the works of ministry. So, so who are the ministers here at Desert Breeze? How many ministers do we have? Raise your hand, you're a minister, okay? You're a minister. Immediately, when you committed your life to Christ, you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you became a minister, and you need to be a part of a local church family so that they can equip you for the works of ministry, for the works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is built up in direct proportion to how many ministers we have here and those that are equipped for those works of ministry through the leadership. So everybody is to be a minister. I'm an equipper of ministers, and you guys are ministers. That's what it's saying here. Now, we often wrongly think of church leaders, especially those who are paid as people who coddle us rather than equip us. So think, think personal trainer rather than massage therapist, okay? That's how I want you to think about my job and the job of the leaders here. And uh, my personal trainer, Drew, from Speed and Strength, I'm a part of a group where he trains us. He doesn't lift the weights for us. He doesn't do that, nor does he run laps while we sit and marvel. Church leaders are called to equip the saints for the works of ministry. It shouldn't surprise you that most people who attend church services come as consumers rather than servants, looking to leaders as massage therapists rather than personal trainers. So here's my question. Here's my question that that I ask our staff, and we talk about this. I think about it myself through the years, it'll be 28 years involved in ministry here through Desert Breeze. That's how long the church has been going uh, this coming Easter, 28 years. And so are we just gathering a crowd? Are we truly making disciples? That's the question. And that's the question you need to ask for every church. There, There are many churches in the valley that are really great at gathering a crowd, but my question for them is are they making disciples? Not very many are actually making disciples. And that's the question I would ask us. We're above average as a church. Average church size is still 100. 80% of the churches are below 250. We'd be in the range of about 14 to 1,500 that would call this their church home. So you can, get, you can hide out here. Anonymity, individuality, that can happen here. We're, we don't want it to happen. We're gonna try to push you beyond that. But that can happen here. You can get lost in the crowd. But are you becoming a, a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's the purpose of the church. That's what we're about to help you to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the big questions I often ask. It's based on the Great Commission. That's what we're supposed to be doing, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations. 
let's not be too easily satisfied that a person leaves our weekend services pleased. See, God wants them to be captivated by who Jesus is and what he has done that ruins them for anything else. And you know that if someone is ruined for anything else is because we've got a 5G process we take you through. Genuine, growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. That I begin to watch that person walk with God, live his word as they connect with other Christians. So walk with God, live his word, contribute to his work, make an impact in this world all for God's glory. Full devotion to Christ. As leaders, we must know and love Christ deeply and make disciples whose primary attachment is to Christ, not us. We're signposts. I'm a signpost. I'm, I'm pointing to him. Don't, don't, don't look to me. Look to him, and that's part of good discipleship. I want our leaders to be like John the Baptist, who was great in God's eyes because he didn't seek to be great in people's eyes. John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. So the nature of leadership is service. And it's something I said a few weeks ago is when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If serving is below you, then leadership is beyond you. So we serve, we're serving you so that we can equip you for service and ministry. A, on your notes, honor faithful leaders with generous provision. Verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So our seven elders here decide the salaries of everyone on staff. Our elders are non-paid. I'm the only one that's paid that I do have a voice on that uh, board of elders, but it can certainly be overruled because there's six other gentlemen on that. And so they're the ones that decide the salaries of everyone on staff. And they do it based on national averages for uh, churches our size, the socioeconomic culture we minister to, education, life, and job experience. I grew up in a, a, a church era where, where they overworked and underpaid pastors. My grandfather uh, died at my age. He was pastoring First Assembly of God in Flagstaff. And he died my age really penniless without any money and no retirement. And um, maybe it was good that God took him home early. But it was, that was that error. And so what it says here, honor faithful leaders with generous provision. None of our pastors or leaders are going to get rich here, believe me. But we need to provide for them, and that's what we try to do. We try to do the best we can to honor God. And, um, and that's part of it. One of the best ways that you can honor uh, leaders, and notice what it says, faithful leaders. We're going to look at some conditions here in just a moment. But one of the best ways to do that is, as it says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
What I have found in ministry, and I think for the most part, we haven't had as much, and I think we're getting really healthy, but there was a time in ministry when we were spending most of our time as leaders just breaking up fights. Too many of the the family members were fighting with each other rather than fighting for each other, and we were like saying, come on, it's time to grow up here. It's time to grow up and start fighting for each other and less with each other. And I, and I understand that's part of leadership too is to teach people good conflict resolution skills. That's a part of it. And that's important. But here's some conditions. Protect leaders from unfounded accusations. Believe me, leaders get attacked a lot and that's why it's saying that. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, so by all means, report to our elders any unbiblical conduct of any leader at Desert Breeze, but make sure it's factual and it's not based on your feelings, that you actually have your facts. And uh, the next one here is re- rebuke, rebuke unrepentant leaders in the presence of all, verses 20 through 21. As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So just a quick question, show of hands. How many have been in a church before where they actually did that from up front where they had the, where leaders fell? Okay, there's just a few, few hands. Okay, there's more hands in this service than uh, the other two services. I was a part of a church a number of years ago where one of our pastors had a one-night stand and he immediately felt conviction and called the senior pastor and that next weekend they brought him up and he read a letter of resignation and then they talked about how they're going to work at restoring him and believe me, as it says here, so that the rest may stand in fear, there were a lot of tears and a lot of fear. And we we live in a day and time where I've actually heard and seen churches where they kind of sweep it up under the rug. And it's a disservice to the church. It's extremely unhealthy. And they say, well, you don't need to know about any of that. He he got another job and he's moved on and all of that. And they kind of do that hush-hush kind of thing. We're doing that for your good. Well, no, actually, that's not for their good. That's not healthy. And so we're not afraid to do this, but we do it at the appropriate level. of of responsibility. We've actually had to do that as it relates to uh, small group leaders, where we've had some small group leaders, uh, some some unhealthiness, and we've had to talk to the small group about them and also the other small group leaders. So we would do it at that level. But at this level, we would actually, if if, uh, any of our pastors uh, or elders fell into immorality, we would talk to you about it. We would tell you what's happened and hope to bring some restoration to him. And I think that's important. There was a couple uh, high-profile ministers in the Chicago area just within the last year that crashed and burned after just trashing two 30-year ministries. And they, they, they made it public. It needed to be made public. And, and that's an important part. Rebuke unrepentant leaders in the presence of all. Here's the last one. Appoint leaders with great care. Verses 22 through 26. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. 
but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So a couple things here. First of all, uh, leaders need to fit the qualifications for leadership. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, and First uh, Peter 5. And um, you'll notice when he gives some personal advice to Timothy here, no longer drink uh, only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I'm thinking that sounds really pretty good right now. I'm kidding. I've never drank in my life, but I'm, I am thinking about starting <laughs> after I just read that verse. I'm kidding. I'm not going to drink. But, uh, but that's, that was kind of for Timothy. He was struggling here. But you'll notice also, uh, by the way, we have been too quick to lay hands on people and set them up as leaders here at times in the past, and it's come back to haunt us. And as it says here at the end, notice what it says, the sins of some are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Believe me, your character will be revealed in, in leadership, in time, because Nothing will invite, you become a target. You have a lot of people come after you and your true character, you can't fake it. You're gonna take a beating, but you gotta be, you gotta have skin that's tough as a rhinoceros, rhinoceros and, and a heart that's tender. And yet your character is revealed in ministry. And that's what it's saying here. In time, in time, character is revealed. Just in life. That's why you don't rush relationships, marriage relationships, or any of that. You, in time, look at their character because it will come out eventually. And that's what he's saying here. Really, really important stuff. So, love like family, care for those who have no family, care for your leaders. Next weekend, we're going to talk about be content in God. We'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Now, Phil's going to read this next section. It's 1 John 4, 7 through 12. I want you to look at these verses here. There is a serious warning in this passage that those who don't love don't know God. So listen to what it says here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Those are great words. Notice the word propitiation. Did you notice that in verse 10? That means that the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve was placed on our Savior Jesus. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. I love it. I love it. He loves you. He really loves you more than you could ever imagine. No one loves you like he loves you. And so may we shock the world with the beauty and depth of our love for one another, giving strong evidence of Christ's indispensable and costly love for us on the cross. 
in Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.